Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And, of course, we couldn't do it without the hardcore legend himself, the Hall of Famer, Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, and uh, it's so good to be back in studio. Uh, last show we did uh, live from Australia, uh, but that it just felt like something was missing. It was a little different. So when I watched it back, I was like, ah, oh, man, you know, I'm a big believer in doing everything as well as you can possibly do it. I think I do it the best when I'm right here in studio. Well, we're excited to have you back, but I am curious, uh, how did your experience go? We heard maybe at the halfway point how things were going, and I know there was uh, maybe a comedy of errors with your stuff, (laughs) but I saw a video that went a little viral of you on stage (laughs) singing a song, and I just got to hear more. Oh, man. Well, first of all, we were closing shows. I mean, the first night, uh, you you learn as you go. So uh, somebody, one of the comics gave me a tip and said, you know, I don't think you should do the birthday songs up front. Do that a little bit later after people get a feel for what your show is. And then so I started doing it before uh, uh, doing the cameo songs and the birthday songs that we've heard some of. I started doing them uh, right before the Q&A. But we realized in Australia, it's a great way to go out. So the promoter heard me do the first one, which was a dude is wishing you, you know, the, the Drifter's White Christmas one. And then we did the My Way takeoff the second night. And what was incredible is that luckily I've got this this mask, uh, Mankind mask, still beaten up. I don't so much as pull it on as place it on. Right. So it allows for a very quick change. And when I go from dude to being mankind, like literally whirl around and I'm the different character and I say, yes, there were times, you know, you slipped and fell like the time that I was thrown off the cell. The crowd pop as if they're getting like a baby face return at right. a wrestling match. And it was, you know, it's funny how it's more pronounced in certain towns. But uh, uh, the final night we ended up in Auckland which was one that I was concerned about is I, I would have wished for a little better sales. But once you're there and you've got what you got and it was still, you know, right around 300 people, it was a ma- you know, almost a magical experience as compared to the night before in Christchurch, where the day that started off tremendously, uh, well, not tremendously, because you have to fly everywhere when you're in New Zealand or Australia. You don't really drive from town to town because they're so spread out. So I would have to get up at 4.30 or 5, and you know I'm not a morning person, um, get over there. And I was pretty exhausted by the time we arrived in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, and then I hear the buzz that the wiggle mm. were on the plane. So, And they had the whole crew with them. Like half the plane was Wiggles personnel. And so I see uh, <laughs> the, uh, the blue wiggle, Anthony, and the purple wiggle. Jeff, the one who was always falling asleep, we're parents. Like, we sure. know about these yeah. guys. I know about the Wiggles. And so it turns out that I, I they were fans, right? A couple of them, Anthony and Jeff, were fans. And there was a newer Wiggle who plays bass and drums, and he was a big fan. So that I leave them tickets, and I and I say, I'm going to dedicate a version of fruit salad to you. Fruit salad, yeah, yeah, fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Uh, I, it's not an exaggeration to say that's an iconic song, right? For sure. So I found a great karaoke version uh, that would have the lyrics up there for the crowd to sing along. Um, I must have practiced that thing 50 times to where I was nailing it. I was in character as dude. And then 
I reminded me so much of when I was raw GM and would completely draw blank. The problem was there was no Stephanie McMahon to walk over and give me a couple buzzwords right. to put me on the right path. And in my head, even though the lyrics are up there, I'm confusing the song's fruit salad with an old Tom T. Hall, Tom T. Hall song called um, Everybody Loves Deer a Bird Sting. These one's about making a fruit salad, the other's about making bird food. And uh, instead of saying step one, peel your banana, I was thinking, first you buy some peanut butter, spread it all over. And I, and I just drew a blank. And if you have ever, you know, and the more I tried to get back on track, the worse it got to where I just, I, I like called it off and I cursed audibly twice, even through a GD in there. Wow. So that's, I mean, I was, because there were two wiggles in the audience and here I am doing this song. And as soon as boom, fruit salad, the, the crowd knew it, right? Like everybody grows up watching these guys. Uh, so, just, so the promoter realized I was in dire straits and he said mick why don't you at least lead the crowd through the uh the chorus one more time so that's what you saw the video after i was visibly dejected and they did get with it and they did a great great job but the night before in wellington i ran into an issue i had never had where it's some nights are darker than others as far as what you can see out there yeah so uh, this in uh, Wellington, we're sold out, right? 305 people sold it. Look at that. Me and Robert, brother, you've never seen so many people. Hanging from the rafters. There was no one else on the car. It was just Ricky, Robert on the marquee. Yes. Ricky, Robert, no one else. Just those guys selling that son. So we sold that son of a bitch out. And uh, about two minutes, I hear this here. I hear this. Like, and it sounds to me like Sylvester Stallone bouncing the little Baldine ball on the ground in the first Rocky. Yeah. And so it's loud enough and often enough that I said, I just said, hey, what's going on here? And I hear someone say, it's a tech. I thought that meant a technical problem. But with the accent, I couldn't hear what he's actually saying was, it's a tick. It was a, it was a transgender. When I messed that up, when I said young lady and found out I was, you know, young man and found out I was, you know, incorrect with that too. But the, so I thought it was just a technical issue. Right, right, right. And then, you know, if you've seen my show, it depends on having dramatic pauses. Yes. Followed by, you know, punchline or the revelation of a story that sometimes, you know, or whimsical remark. And when I would pause, I start hearing this. F off. <laughs> like a, oh my gosh. Like a ghost. <laughs> like a ghost. Uh, F off, and they just been saying the word. And so that's when I realized it's not a technical problem. I don't even tie the two together. I said, who's saying that? And I lift up the, the lift up the lights, and the woman says, I'm sorry, uh, my, you know, child has Tourette's. And I said, hey, I'm an autism dad. We're all in this thing together. I'm just so glad that you could be here, and please enjoy the rest of the show. And then they turn down the lights, and I hear, F you. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the night, I'd never had that experience That's in fantastic. my life. But then once that got a major pop, and then once I addressed it, like the elephant in the room, as they yeah. say, everyone was free to understand it a little better. Yes. And the show went on, even though the person kept saying F you. And they came up for the uh, meet and greet, and they were really happy. Uh, 
But did you sign their eight by ten F off? <laughs> that would have been fantastic. <laughs> My gosh. Oh man. <laughs> this is a trip you'll never forget, fair to say. Oh yeah, it was a it was a good trip. But anyone who's ever been over there knows it's it's grueling because of the wake ups. And it's like word gets out that I like Tim Tams, which is like a a national snack. Okay. Chocolate coated graham cracker. They have all kinds of different How many of those did you get? Well, they start giving me not only the regular pack, which is sizable, but the family pack. Oh, wow. And I'd be like, I cannot be alone in my uh, <laughs> can't leave me alone. So I'd have to open up the pack and like, uh, you know. Hey, everyone, enjoy. Everybody, that's what I'll do. I'll tell you when I gained the most weight in WWE is when the word got out. You know, Rock would talk about chocolate chip cookies. And Rock was a big proponent of the cheat day. Right. But the other six days, he was incredibly strict with his diet. So he's maybe indulging in a couple cookies once a week, but they were arriving en masse, like three to four dozen, you know, three separate cookies, three to four dozen each. And I'd be there alone at the end of the night. And, I, you know, my knees are starting to act up. My hips getting bad. So I'm kind of drowning my, you know, my pain with the sweet stuff. And I, that was part of the reason I picked up so much weight, not placing at all. At the Rock's feet. But uh, had he not mentioned the chocolate chip cookies, chances are I would have been uh, under three bills for those uh, final uh, those final cactus jack. Well, this is the time of the program where you give a shameless plug to your old friend who's down on his luck, trying to make a buck. Oh, yeah. He's got this uh, new product. He's trying to hope yeah, something hits for he, him. He's hoping something. He's got a movie called Black Adam, and he's uh, kind of promoting it. I guess you know, Desperate times call for desperate measures. Clearly. It's a heck of an energy drink, my favorite energy drink. And I just hope uh, fate will be with him a little bit. It's uh, dealt him a harsh hand these last few years. It really has. And, uh, so here's to you, Dwayne Johnson. So since we're talking about recent times, you and I have not really had a chance to see each other in person since the wrestling world has changed. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's, it's hard to imagine a WWE without Vince McMahon. Yeah. And you shared your thoughts about you know, Vince McMahon and his legacy, and more importantly, what he did for your family. Oh, yeah. But now everyone's talking about what's this going to look like with Hunter? And we're going to be talking about SummerSlam 97 today, your opponent in that match. Yeah, yeah. So before we talk about 97, let's talk about today. Have you had a chance to see much of the Hunter era of WWE? Not as much as I would have liked, but I have caught two Raws uh, when I was overseas, and I've been reading about these returns. And, uh, man, I, I, this is what I'll do. I'll simplify things. I'll go back to an article I wrote on Facebook a few years ago. It said, WWE, we have a problem. And that got a lot of attention. I, I remember. Think, rightfully so, because I was basically saying the problem is, given the kind of haphazard booking where it's either feast or famine, you know, you take it, you guys who perform well and produce results everywhere they went just kind of cast aside. And I think the most mysterious debut of all was uh, Karrion Cross arriving without Carly. Like, I just... And in a silly outfit? Yeah, in a yeah. silly outfit and a losing in day one in, uh, in 90 seconds. Yeah. And I remember someone trying to cover him for him going, hey, no, no, this is an NXT. He's still the undefeated NXT. It's like, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Right. And I think now they're kind of just dismissing that he was ever even in thankfully uh, yeah yeah and has has him back with scarlet which is a great uh you know um one and they're of the great, great people in real life yeah too. Yeah. yeah and yeah. They, and they really deserve that this break yes and so what i'm seeing is that 
people are getting the talent is, you know, the you you're getting a second chance that the, you know, the cream is rising to the top. I think there's more of a sense that you're playing to win instead of playing not to lose, yes. which is really important. So I think, you know, mistakes are accepted as an unavoidable uh, byproduct of growth and that people are not under the same pressure they were to be perfect all the time, which means you're nowhere close to perfect any of the time. Right. And I would say the best compliment I can give the new Hunter regime is that I do not think WWE has that problem. And that was the biggest problem I saw of the last few years. I love Vince McMahon. Yeah. Right? And uh, I can't think of a time and place where I could have been better utilized. You know, there's so many reasons why my push could have been shortened, uh, not as strong, forgotten. And there's no way you and I are having this conversation without Vince, with a little help from yeah. Bruce and Jr. and The Undertaker. I don't think you can ever dismiss the power of The Undertaker sure. wanting to do business. Uh, and even some other guys on my way out, like Kevin Nash saying, hey, the guy's the guy's money, you know, Shawn Michaels liked me immediately. And so I had some big proponents, you know, Bret Hart liked working with me. So all the top guys I work with enjoyed it. But still, you know, Vince, to see, to listen to Bruce, who told him, hey, this guy's got a more interesting backstory than the, the fictional portrait you guys have created. And that's where the groundbreaking interviews with Jim Ross came in. So all that ultimately was up to Vince. But I think... Uh, so they're just saying a change is as good as a rest. At least it's in a kink song. Uh, and um, and I know Memphis, for example, they used to, as a matter of. Uh, um, uh, it was their principled really way. A matter to- of principle to change over the bookers every six months, thinking that you get some fresh eyes on the product. I think the be- benefit of that is obviously you're changing things up. The knock on it was that guys only had six months to produce and they would do some hot shotting things, which I think we're going to get to in, uh, you know, SummerSlam, uh, sure. match, uh, you know, uh, night of many gimmicks. Um, but I think, it, I think it's a really good thing for WWE. I think people are excited. I, uh, I, 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 I feel for Mr. McMahon because, you know, business is was so much a part of his life. So I hope he has some things and he does have grandchildren and some things to, you know, be meaningful. He could still make a huge impact. In other ways, but I think uh, I give I give Triple H an A, and yeah. then uh, we'll see in the following few months if that becomes an A plus. There's a lot of momentum right now yeah. as you and I are talking. I think WrestleMania is sold out. If it's not completely sold out, it almost is. Obviously, that's a long way yeah. off. The hey, even- Conrad, I want to change my answer or just okay. finesse my answer. Uh, I did see a clip from when we were in Australia, and the question came up about uh, when I would come back if there was any resentment for um, for taking up a spot of a you know full time guy. And I pointed out that Ed said the guys don't see you that way. Right. You know, you come in and you work on these programs. With that being said, The Rock's in a different stratosphere. Of course. Anytime Dwayne Johnson has a chance to be part of a show, he should. The entire dressing room has to understand that this guy is the biggest star in the world. He comes back. He worked hard, right? He, he comes back. He's main evented uh, two manias, right? Two manias. Uh, since he's been gone, you mean? Yeah, since he's been gone. Well, I mean, I think they made him the host in Atlanta and then two with, with Cena back-to-back, like you said. Two with Cena back-to-back. Yeah. Um, and then he had the, the run where he came in and he was like the knight in shining armor for me. 
in 2004. So the rocks places, that's perfect. Uh, you know, I was the guy getting built up and, you know, building up a program and getting beaten down by evolution. And then rock comes riding to the rescue. And with a guy's schedule that busy, he's got to be the busiest man in show business. For sure. Right. You have to be grateful for any time that he can come back. And I think, you know, crossing my fingers, uh, even with WrestleMania being sold out, uh, man, I think we would all love to see the rock and Roman. I mean, I think everybody is, is, is sort of freestyling. That's the match they want. Uh, and as you and I are talking this weekend, there's going to be a big show over in Cardiff, a stadium show. Yeah. And lots of folks are wondering, Hey, is it time for a change? As, as we're talking now, we just passed two full years with Roman Reigns as the champ. And in, in the current era, that didn't feel like that would ever happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, they used to flip flop the title a lot in the last, I don't know, two decades or so. But once upon a time, that was kind of commonplace. The the Hogan's, the Brunos, et cetera. Bruno with the seven year reign. Unbelievable. Right? Um I mean I think Harley even had a nearly three years with the NWA title, but two years as and that's the sh- three years of going to every city and going, kid, what's your finish? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Ace, I I do a drop kick off the top rope. I'll move. <laughs> <laughs> only harley uh, did you ever think we could see a two-year reign in modern wwe it feels like wrestling has changed a lot just in that regard shows a lot of uh confidence in uh in roman for and, sure and i think that's I, I like the run i would not like to see uh, just personally if there's a chance that we see rock and roman uh at wrestlemania for the title that title's got to stay in the bloodline. And now that we have Sami Zayn, oh man, this is, this guy's just the gift that keeps on giving, right? Sami Zayn has been one of the most criminally underrated performers. I mean, seriously, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. everywhere you put that guy, he succeeds. I think a lot of people tuned in our most recent WrestleMania and thought, man, this match with him and Johnny Knoxville, is just going to be a train wreck. It was super entertaining. It was it may have been a train wreck, but it was a super entertaining yes. train wreck. And there were things that I'd never seen uh, and it was so ridiculous. I mean, hey, if it's not your your image of what wrestling should be, it's not your image of what wrestling should be. But for anyone who <laughs> kind of has an open mind about that yes. stuff, I think Kevin Owens summed it up best. And there's two guys who turn everything they touch into gold. Yes, make absolutely. the very most out of what they have. He said like every second, I keep paraphrasing, but every second of that was epic. And it was like, that was one of the greatest train. You know, it was it was exactly what it needed to be, and it broke up the. You can't. You just can't have guys vying for five star matches. Yes, one after another after another because it just becomes a little jumble in your mind. So I, I liken it to driving down the road with a new stereo. And I remember doing this in TNA. I spent uh, four or five hours at the Geek Squad, and they, they hooked up my. 2003 Chevy Venture minivan with the state of the art thing. And as I'm driving to, you know, a long drive to New Orleans from where I was in Florida, and uh, you turn up the volume, but if you turn it up full blast for more than two songs, full blast becomes normal. Yes. And now when you turn it down to five, it sounds like it's not even on. Yes. So what you want when you're driving down the road, as I believe you want when you're in a major wrestling show, is to have a few peaks and valleys. So that your senses, your senses can recover, 
Doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy that next song, but now four songs later, let's turn this bad boy up. So I just don't think you can live life or or perform a wrestling show uh, with the dial turned to 11 all the time. Well, I think Dusty Rhodes once said that, you know, a great wrestling show should be booked like the circus. There's something for everybody. There's the trapeze artists, the lion tamers, the clowns. I think I even mentioned in one of my books, they said, hey, if you don't like the tightrope walker, maybe you like 17 clowns piling out of the back of a Ford Pinto. Yeah. That might be your thing. You know, you take a kid to the circus and they can't gauge how difficult it is to see someone on the flying trapeze or walking the tightrope, but they can get a kick out of those clowns. So oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And I, I, you know, I'm not knocking people who go out there and try to steal the show because that's, that was my mindset for most of my career, but I just don't think that leads to the best epic wrestling showcase possible. Football fans, the first Sunday of the NFL season is here and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is giving new customers a can't-miss offer to celebrate the return of the NFL season. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 and get $200 in free bets instantly. As an added bonus for Week 1, everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. It's simple. Bet on an NFL team to win. And if your team leads by 10 at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code Foley to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet this Sunday. That's code Foley only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about current wrestling, and then we'll move on. There's one more thing that's become a bit of a, a hot button issue in the last recent few days. Will Osprey uh, was recognized by the Wrestling Observer as having, I think it's four five star yeah. matches in the last month, and a Twitter account pointed that out that by doing this in the last month, he's amassed more five star matches than John Cena, CM Punk, and Kurt Angle combined. And Kevin Nash, as Kevin Nash tends to do on his <laughs> new said, great podcast, click how, this. How's his merchandise? Hey, how's his merchandise sales? <laughs> Which I, I appreciate that Kevin, as he always does, brings it right back to business. Yeah. And I think it does develop a debate amongst uh, a lot of wrestling personalities. Would you rather be a critical success or a financial success? And those are two different goals. And I freestyled the Jeff Jarrett that. Perhaps, you know, Will Ospreay, his idea of what a wrestler is and and his goals and aspirations were to be the best wrestler in the world. Mm -hmm. And perhaps he had a different set of goals or aspirations than Roman Reigns. And maybe neither would feel the same level of satisfaction if their roles were reversed. Yeah. And you were a guy who certainly was at the top of the mountain in WWE. But long before that, man, you were putting it all on the line when a lot of people, Arn Anderson included, as you say in your live show, really questioned, yeah. hey, what are you doing here? Uh, but you were critically acclaimed. And, and I wonder where you land on that. What's more important in your mind's eye? It, it, I know you don't speak for Will and you don't yeah. speak for Kevin, but you speak for Mick. You know, I had a great, there was a great question. I, it was, I was really glad to see the support of the Australian and New Zealand wrestlers from the independent community coming out. And I'll say the only interaction I've had with Will was he got in touch with me based on a trip I was supposed to be taking five or six years ago to New Orleans where Will and the promoter had some kind of falling out. And then the promoter took to like 
stopping in his car and cutting these long, crazy promos about Will, calling him a spot monkey. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Will was saying that I needed to make it there, despite the misgivings he had about this guy. Like, I needed to go on this tour. And then the tour fell apart and the guy's no longer in business. So that's the only interactions I've had with Will, which were positive. He's phenomenal. Unbelievable. Right? It's yeah. incredible the stuff that he can do and makes it look effortless. And now he's, he seems to be in a um, little social media war. Um, Kenny Omega, which mm -hmm. could yield incredible results. Um, but I'm going to go back to the question the guy asked me, would I rather be part of a great match or a great storyline? And I said, I think the, to me, the great matches, they go hand in hand with the great storylines. Right. I needed the great storyline. I needed JR to, you know, to uh, call, I loved having JR call those matches to explain the story to the fans. And of course, he had that amazing job of just saying enough, but putting you in that, uh, you know, putting you in that space where you feel almost like you're in that wrestler's head. So I, I think the great moments are more important to me than great matches. And I think if you have great matches for too long, too regularly, people stop seeing them as a, as a big deal. That mm -hmm. Shawn Michaels excelled almost every night. Kurt Angle excelled yes. almost every night. But if I had one knock on Kurt, you know, Kurt, you know, throw that out there. Kurt was so great so regularly that people took it for granted. Yes, I agree. That he said they didn't, he, it wasn't a big deal to see a great Kurt Angle match. It was expected. It was expected. So he was almost like a victim of his own greatness. Mm -hmm. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, like uh, with the Olympic gold medalist pedigree, and I believe he won an Olympic gold medal. You'd have to ask Kurt. <laughs> 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 he was also he was also so enjoyable and such a great comic foil that I don't know if everyone realized how outstanding he was. So I haven't watched enough of um um of Will to know exactly what these five star matches were, but um I would go back and you know I would I would have to challenge whether or not anybody has done, outdone Kurt Angle and what's the difference between a four and a half star match and a five star match. But I'm not going to pretend that Will's not a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal wrestler. Yeah, I mean, I think most people, you know, most uh, quote unquote smart fans would think that Will Ospreay is arguably the best wrestler in the world. Yeah. But I think maybe what gets lost a lot of times is. The entire industry talks about five star matches, and and I have a I'm a 25 year subscriber to the Observer, yeah. but even I know that's just Dave's opinion. Yeah, it's yeah. not an objective fact of who drew the most or who sold the most, or that's just a guy's opinion, and that that's okay. I value Dave's opinion, or I, I wouldn't be a 25 year subscriber. But I think Kevin brought it back to it's not just a critical art form; it's also the wrestling business. Yeah, and. uh I guess I want to ask you, would you rather be, as Jay-Z, the rapper would call it, underpaid or overrated? I think I was both at once for a while. You Absolutely, know? you were. <laughs> yeah, I think I was overrated and underpaid. Um, underrated. You were underrated. I was underrated. I don't know. You know, I was underrated up to a point and underpaid. And then I don't think I was ever overpaid. But I do think that uh, at a certain point, I had so much goodwill accrued that people were giving me a pass. Like I hear, for example, I, I hurt my back in 2006. Um, it was pretty chronic for 
10, 11 years until I had my hip replaced. Um, and I kept getting injured when I would train hard for comeback matches. So like in the entirety of the time I was with TNA, I never actually made a comeback. Right. I, if someone missed a move and I hit a double arm DDT and I pulled out the sock because I just didn't have the gas in the tank. So, uh, and I thought given the circumstances, I did as well as I could while not being in the shape that, uh, you know, that I should have been part of, maybe I was using the back as an excuse. I remember my daughter, um, seeing me off when I went to the gym and I was back in like 42 minutes and she said, Oh, did you forget something? And I was like, no. And I said, I finished the workout and I didn't even have the, the, the guts to tell her I'd actually worked in a trip to the bank too. So the, uh, <laughs> the working out was a little briefer than it should have, but I do think I was, you know, I was probably overrated and simultaneously underpaid if that's possible. Sure. All right. Well, let's jump into uh, why we're here today. We're going back 25 years ago. I've enjoyed revisiting this era, 1997. Uh, we've got SummerSlam 97 on deck here. It's the Meadowlands in New Jersey. We're going to talk a lot about that. The first time there's been a major WWE show, uh, especially uh, to this level, in a long time in New Jersey. But it's been a pretty interesting summer on our way here. You become Dude Love on July 14th, which we've covered in the archives. Yeah. That same night, you become Tag Team Champions, which is obviously a big deal for you. Uh, there's two weeks in between then and SummerSlam. So now you find yourself almost as an accidental tag team champion with Stone Cold. You're here as Dude Love, but you're also building towards a steel cage match between yourself, but this time as Mankind, not as Dude Love, against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And uh, this steel cage is not the one that maybe we're familiar with these days. It's the old, unforgiving blue steel. Yeah. Um, you saw a lot of that on TV before you ever actually got to work with it. Did it meet or exceed or how did it meet your expectations? Oh, I'd heard how brutal those, uh, blue cage, um, bars were before I ever got to WWE. And then when you get there pre, I would say within two months of my cell match in 98, WWE transitioned to longer boards underneath the ring, which meant a little more give. Because that, you know, you look at, for example, Bret Hart suplexing Owen, or maybe it was Owen. The suplexing. ring doesn't move. The ring doesn't move. Um, you want a little movement. I had, I had heard that um, uh, NBC, the head of programming, Lorne Michaels, did not want to see the ring moving on NBC Saturday night, uh, where WWE came in one night a month, and they had those big shows in, instead of Saturday Night Live. And did these great ratings, but the the rings, as per Lorne Michaels' request, they, they didn't move. And the problem is with a ring that doesn't give, it takes a lot out of the people. Uh, You're saying Lorne Michaels, he ran Saturday Night Live. You mean Dick Ebersol? Dick Ebersol, that's yeah, it. Dick, yeah. Eber sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Dick Ebersol, not Lorne Michaels. Uh, Dick Ebersol did not want to see the ring moving, and thus it did not. And yeah. all of the this is what the story I heard. And it makes sense. So WWE uh, redid all their rings in the same model, and there was a, not a lot of give. And then once you have the cage and the, the screws are in and all that type of thing, that makes a stiff ring even stiffer. Yes. But the blue bars allowed you to climb and allowed for some really um, creative cage matches, like, uh, and it allowed for some really cool... Uh, Things uh, in terms of timing to be done with the escaping the cage. I know not everybody's a proponent of having a match where the goal is to escape the cage. 
but it could be so much more dramatic on the blue bars as opposed to just crawling out of a door. Yes. Uh, because you could have these great cutoff spots. And for guys who were both creative and athletic and, and great workers like Owen and Brett with one of the best cage matches of all time, that could really yield in great results. But you were going to feel it. Oh, you were going to feel it in a way you did not feel the cyclone fencing, meaning the next day. You know, if you took bumps into that thing, there was no way, you know, no way. There was possibly ways to create illusions, but uh, not without some serious physical fallout as well. It was also probably easier from a production standpoint. There was better visibility. Oh, you could put you the, could camera the camera right, right there. in yeah, there. Sure. Yeah. Um, since you brought it up, I do want to ask, you grew up as a traditional wrestling fan. The purpose of the cage was no one in, no one out. There's no escape. And well, then, no, no. Well, I grew up on the W, the old WWF cage matches, which were always the goal was to escape. Okay. So, you know, the, the snooker match has gone down in wrestling lore as being one of the most amazing matches of all time. I'll argue it wasn't the match. It was the moment. Yes. Because if you dissect that, uh, probably the truth is if you dissected a lot of my cage matches, it was, it was an average cage match, but it had the snooker comeback. You had the grinding. All you needed to have a good cage match back in the day was a good comeback. You baby face raking the, the heels face, some blood and a finish, and you were satisfying almost everybody. Now, on that night that I went to see Snooka in 83, there was a buzz in the air because he had taken off the, he'd taken off in a losing effort to Backlund, but in, I think, uh, two years prior to that, I'm not sure. I think it may have been that exact, exact same day, June 26th or June 28th. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, June 26th or June 28th in 82. Okay. And then that was the same date, June 28th, that I had the the cell match with uh, The Undertaker. So wow. it was just kind of a, a cool uh, wrestling footnote. Um, but you, didn't, you did not have to be a great cage match worker to create a great moment because fans, you know, the bar of expectations was, was pretty low and pretty basic. Is you're there to get revenge. Uh, the door was opened uh, creatively. You know, I remember even, you know, Snuka beating down Don Morocco and thinking to myself, why doesn't he just go out the cage? And then right. you have Pat Patterson going, well, I tell you, Vince, what he thinks and what we think are different. And that made perfect sense to me. Okay, he wants to inflict more damage. So I like the idea of the cage keeping everyone in and, and keeping the wrestlers, keeping the wrestlers inside, keeping outside interference from getting in. But I grew up with the idea that you escape from a cage as being the goal of the cage match. So let's talk about, uh, you know, where we're coming off of this really uh, hot raw. You're working in tag matches with, with Steve Austin against Brett Nowen in Worcester, Mass. And then uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. And then uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. The WWF is on their Canadian tour. Yeah. And I'm curious here when the, the Hart Foundation is really hotter than ever here mm-hmm. in the summer of 97. And here in America, you're a babyface with the guy who's clearly got the hot hand on the babyface side and stone cold and you're teaming up against the two hottest, maybe the two hottest heels in America. But boy, that is not the case when you go into Canada. What was that like for you to be, Hey, I'm a babyface, a couple hundred miles from here, but a heel here just because of my opponent. I don't remember that ever happening. Nah, in it was really a, 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 a unique dichotomy that I think we all enjoyed like a different challenge. Uh, I remember those 
sorry about that. The maritime, uh, Canadian maritime audiences that didn't get as much entertainment, they were always just, they were amazing. I'll say that Newfoundland is up there with the best crowds I've ever wrestled in front of. Wow. Not to downplay Nova Scotia, but uh, far more people hit Halifax than hit uh, St. John's, right. Newfoundland. It's way out there. It's as close as you can get in North America to being uh, in Europe, which is why there are still enclaves that, where you feel like you're walking through Ireland because there's so many Irish descendants there. They still got the brogue. It was a great, you know, you, you, you call them goofy noofies. That was like the, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate in put downs. I see. Yeah. Uh, with the same guy using every, every, every person comes in would put them down with the same thing. Goofy noofies. But they were incredible. Uh, I remember, you know, it being so much different in Newfoundland when I wrestled uh, with Steve against uh, uh, the Heart Foundation, as opposed to when we came back like a year later. And I believe I teamed up with Steve and it was against Rock and then, uh, somebody else. And just the reaction when the Rock had the Stonehawk, Stone Cold wrestle buddy laying on the ground and he kicked the arm and he threw the, the pad and he went for that people's elbow and Steve caught him with the Thez press. Like it was up there with maybe top 10 reactions I've ever heard anywhere. So those crowds were so great to wrestle in front of, especially when the Heart Foundation was red hot. And you look back at a match like that that wasn't televised, you know, this is just for the house, but it's with Steve Austin, Brett, and Owen Hart. Looking back, man, sometimes you don't know these are the best times of your life until you look back. But, I mean, look at who's in that ring. Like, as a fan, you would think, I can't believe that match happened, and I'm lucky enough to to watch it. But I can't imagine from your perspective, it's not going to be too much longer, and none of that's going to be possible. Brett's going to be out of here. Mm -hmm. Owen, unfortunately, no longer with us. It was a moment in time, and there were no cameras present. That's pretty awesome. And I was still trying to get the feel for the dude love character, realizing that, well, if dude is every bit as tough as Mankind or Cactus Jack, there's no need for those characters. And it seemed like we had told that story so well in the interviews with JR that looking back on it, like once I became dude, that to some people was like the end of the journey. Yes. So mankind, I remember working as mankind at some house shows and you got the sense that they wanted to see the dude. Oh, wow. Right. The dude over, you know, he outlived his, uh, his, uh, his usefulness. I, you know, I always say the summer of love was a magical time, right? July and August of 97. But by the time I was told to put 28 minutes in with Jim the Anvil Neidhart in, um, um, uh, Trying to think of that in Kuwait is the night before. Uh, I guess uh, the, not much of a crowd, but it was a guaranteed show. Yeah, and the night before it ended a little early, so they wanted a full show. It was like twenty-seven minutes with Jim Nider. That's a long time, right? That's a tough match for anybody. And by the fifth time I got up on the second turnbuckle and did the dude dance, like I realized the summer of love was over and that yes. ship had sailed. And of course, dude would come back in a great incarnation as a heel. But that was like a, a beautiful three, four month run. Uh, when you're in Kuwait and you're doing that and in your mind's eye, you think, hey, they're not with it anymore. This has gotten old in the same match. Do you wonder or worry? Can I go back to Mankind? Will they buy me there? Since they did feel like, you know, that was maybe the end of the journey. Yeah. Because the way you told the story, that did feel like the if this was a movie, we're about to roll the credits. Yeah, right. You're right. right. Well, but now 
you're still wanting to make a living in the industry. You kind of want to hit rewind a little bit, right? Well, we found a way to make that transition work. Like I said, this goes back to what we were talking about. And I'm not picking on Will Ospreay at yeah, all, right? right? Because Will, I'm saying, you know, one of the great years. And I would say Moxley's my MVP at this point in the year, just for what his presence on TV has meant coming back from, uh, uh, rehabilitation yes. and willing to go anywhere and work any style like that reminds me of like the Harley race, you know, yes. the traveling champions of old. So I would put Moxley up there as my as my male MVP. Becky Lynch at this point as my female MVP, even if she, and she's not going to probably return before the end of I don't know, even if she doesn't return before the end of the year. I think what she did on a weekly basis was just so impressive that she gets my nod. Not just because she's a good friend, uh, uh, and I was who cites me as an inspiration, but because I think she did amazing stuff. But Will Osprey is doing things that are incredible. Yes. But playing off that, when I'm dude love, like I said, I realize okay, if he works exactly like mankind or cactus, there's no reason to bring those guys back into the fold. So dude was listed, you know, dude became the guy who would rather not get in there and mix it up with the, you know, even says, daddy, that's not exactly the dude's bag. But I, that's the, the interview, you know, at Madison Square Garden in September of 97. So in that case, when I made the transition from basically being dude, interviewing mankind and coming up with the surprise Cactus Jack, all of a sudden he was the coolest and toughest of the characters. And then a couple months after that, there was a great, I think, a, I think it was a really good angle. I don't want to say it was great, but it was a way to get Kane that, you know, put another notch in his belt. Yes. Not by defeating Dude Love, because he chokeslammed Dude on the, uh, on the ramp. We actually dented the ramp, which I was told couldn't be done. Wow. But we did. And uh, so when Mankind came back, it was seen as a much more serious threat. And then when Mankind did the, did the honors with emphasis, you know, for Kane, this wasn't a 50-50 match. This was a, you know, uh, not a destruction, but it was clearly a sizable win for that new character. That really meant something. So I did find a way to make the characters meaningful and to kind of revolve them so they each had their separate face. But uh, that's why the uh, incredibly named Love Handle had to Fantastic. go. Because it was the mandible claw with uh, tie-dye on it. <laughs> so if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know all about Mick Foley and I talking about the hot tag for your ding-dong. Of course, we're talking about Blue Chew. This episode and all of our episodes are brought to you by Blue Chew. Blue Chew has been a day one advertiser here for us on all of our podcasts. We couldn't do what we're doing without Blue Chew. And we hope by now you've heard about them. But why haven't you tried them? You see, we all know confidence can take you far in life. Well, <clears throat> that goes for the bedroom too. That's where Blue Chew can come in. It's a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but this is in chewable form. So if you don't like swallowing pills, well, that's no problem. And oh yeah, it's cheaper too. You can take Blue Chew's tablets anytime, day or night. So you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now the process is simple. You'll sign up at bluechew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, well, you'll receive your prescription within days. And the best part is, man, it's all done online. That means you get to skip the awkward conversations, the waiting in line at the pharmacy, and the doctor's office completely. Now, the Blue Chews tablets are made right here in the USA. They're prepared to ship directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. 
And buddy, we got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. Let's, uh, let's talk about what we're doing next here. We've got, we've got to keep building the Heart Foundation. You're the tag team champion. The show's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The main event is yourself, Steve Austin, and the WWF champion, Undertaker, taking on Bret Hart, Owen Hart, and Davey Boy Smith now in a flag match. Now, I bring this up because you are maybe an unlikely tag team partner for Steve Austin, but given the long history you've had with The Undertaker, boy, we're really stretching now. It's more about, you know, this America, Canada circumstance more so than what you guys' personal issue was as characters, The Undertaker. What do you think of that creative? He's my he's my lifelong rival, and now we're and without really partners. a story as to why we uh, yes, mended fences. Just happily here, you know. I think uh, <laughs> going back to the. To the controversy that was not a controversy in my mind, which is Undertaker not mentioning me at the uh, yes. Hall of Fame, and then me, you know, saying, "Look, if I'm not hurt by it, don't be hurt on my behalf." This right. guy did so much for my career, and I even heard a quote where he goes, "Look, I love Mick Foley. I've talked on Blue and the Gills about Mick Foley, which he has, and I think the only thing knock that Undertaker would have is that he was not a dude love guy." I say, like, I think it hurt him a little bit on a professional level that the guy he'd done so much for was now mankind was out there doing this thing. But over time, he really came to appreciate the three different faces. But I remember when the two of us teamed up, I believe in Kuwait or maybe one of those other uh, countries in that region, Dubai or uh, Oman, one of those things that the main event was the Undertaker and Dude Love which didn't seem to make uh, a lot of sense. Right. But, uh, yeah, they threw us together, the Americans versus the Canadians, and I'm going to take your word for it that it was a great match. It was super heated. Uh, uh, I think Brian Pillman got involved. He's going to prevent the Undertaker from getting the flag. He helps the Hart Foundation to victory. But I think up to that point, it might have been like a top five most heated match in Raw history because this – as crazy as it sounds now in hindsight, I mean, that was the genius of Vince McMahon at the time, I suppose. This America-Canada rivalry with the Hart Foundation at the centerpiece, fans were just really with oh, it. Wow. And that's why we go back to Canadian Stampede as being one of the yes. most. And it was just an in-your-house. And I'm, yes. who better to talk about in-your-house than Mr. In-your-house? Of course. The number one name in secondary pay-per-view. <laughs> the, this this Raw is also known, uh, well known for the scuffle that Vince McMahon and Bret Hart would get into at ringside. And that's almost something that we never thought we would see. Right. An acknowledgement that Vince McMahon was maybe management, much less the owner. And then some physicality. You know, once upon a time, guys like Gordon Soley and, and, and guys who were on the broadcast side, they were untouchable. Right. And now you see Vince involved a little bit. This is before he's the Mr. McMahon character. Before he's wrestling Stone right. Cold yeah, on yeah, Raw, yeah. were you surprised to see him put himself in that spot? We were because I think uh, the world sees the uh, Montreal Screwjob as the advent of the Mister McMahon character, 
But this, like you said, this would be the first time acknowledging, I think, in the open that this guy was more than just an announcer. Yes. That, and I don't know if that was planned, but it, 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 it worked, right? Brett was a spectacular heel, even though he was cutting babyface promos. He was. You know, talking about the Canadian way of life uh, where we, you know, we look up for the, uh, we look out for the poor, we take care of the ill. And I gave Shawn Michaels the line. Uh, where he said he remembered uh, uh, opening up his Canadian toy soldiers on Christmas morning. They all came out of the box <laughs> <laughs> like that, which is ridiculous because Canadians yes. have fought very bravely, you know, sure. and, and uh, many a conflict. But it got really personal. Remember when Sean put the Canadian flag up his nose? Oh, yeah. Like, man, they almost had to have a police escort. It's crazy. And that was a time back in the States when there were like two or three shows stopped in a row because of fear of rioting, you know, egged on by, yeah. by, by Sean, you know, doing a great job as being the heel. But uh, I think there were riots in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Memphis and Little Rock, back to yes. back. Yes. Memphis, maybe we came close. Little Rock uh, was, a, was, yeah, it got, it got nasty. We're going to be talking about all of that, including that famous Madison Square Garden match where we see Cactus Jack. But. This is where it starts to get interesting, because this is the same night where you're doing the six-man with Undertaker and Stone Cold, and you're doing it as Dude Love. But then later, you're going to be wrestling on Shotgun Saturday night against Owen for the IC title as Mankind. And I don't know. I don't think this has happened before in wrestling. <laughs> Did you find that challenging to try to go back and forth from the two characters? We see you do yeah. it at the end of every show now, no problem. but. Never before was was Kevin Nash a master blaster and Diesel right. and Vinny Vegas and Oz in the same night, and you're going to start doing that. Well, in the, yes, but I had honed that craft when I was in world class championship wrestling, where for budgetary reasons, when Killer Tim Brooks left, they didn't hire a new heel; they just had me working twice a night, once as Cactus Jack and once as <laughs> not super executioner. Gorgeous Gary Young and I won the titles as, uh, well, somebody will know this off the top of their head. And we were masked, uh, mask wrestlers. But the deal was I'd broken my wrist against Eric Embry oh. in a scaffold match. So I was going out and losing as not super, it's going to kill me that I'm calling it super, whatever he was. I've got the same burgundy cast up to my wrist. So I lose the match there. And then I come out supposedly with my heat as Cactus Jack with the same distinctive walk. One night, Matt Bourne, in what may have been one of the most embarrassing, and Matt liked to kid around a little bit. So as he, I shot him off and he had the headlock on me, he kept a real firm grasp and took my mask off in the process. And I come off those ropes, and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> crawled out of the ring, and Bronco Lubitsch hands me the mask, oh and I come my. back out. Like, yeah. So I did have a little bit of, uh, a little background in working two characters in one night, trying to make the styles different. But at that point, the, the, just the audience accepted yeah. that this is something that went on. I would have uh, Chad Patton read a note, you know, saying, I have a note from Dude Love, and he would go, Ow, have mercy. Let me tell you something, Daddy. The dude is, uh, you know, the, oh, the dude. And Owen would help me write these promos. But the, this is not exactly the dude's bag, but he knows somebody whose bag it indeed is. And then they'd introduce Mankind as the uh, the replacement. And the place would go, to quote Pat Patterson, banana, banana singular. 
So uh, it was it was a fun time. Do you think it could work again? I asked because I heard recently Road Dog say on his great podcast, Oh, You Didn't Know, that he once pitched Sami Zayn as wrestling as Sami Zayn on Friday, but being El Generico on Monday. And Vince, back in the day, I guess, shot it down. Sammy could die. He could have pulled that off. I'm going to stand on my explanation that uh, everything Sammy and Kevin Owens do turns to gold. Yes. So if he was given that, uh, given that opportunity, I know he could pull it off. So the go-home Raw for SummerSlam is in Pittsburgh on July 28th. Little do we know, 11 months later to the day, you're going to set all kinds of history in oh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, it features you on the show twice. You team with Steve Austin, his dude, love to take on the Godwins. It goes to a count out because Owen interferes. And then later, you find yourself in a cameraman outfit, and you're going to attack Hunter Hurst-Helmsley <laughs> before his match against Vader. China's going to make the save. You and Hunter are brawling in the stands, yeah. but you're dressed as a cameraman. I loved that. thought yeah. it was super creative. Is that a Vince Russo idea? I wish I could tell you. I don't think it was the first time that it had been done either. I think there'd been a few. Well, I loved it. Yeah, thanks. I, I don't think it was the first. I'd be happy to find out that it was that other people emulated that. But I think it was a case of us copying an idea that it already worked. It is a great. It is a great idea. You yes. know, you're there and you got the camera covering up and you're sneaking out under the cover of darkness. Your heartbeat is you know quick um, because of the adrenaline, and then you you have to make that out it's nerve-wracking but it's really rewarding so uh i don't know if it was vince russo vince had some great vince russo had some great creative ideas and a lot of the things that did work for my character were uh russo initiatives uh but i can't tell you for a fact whose that was talk to me about brawling in the stands you know we see most of the action happen between the confines of the squared circle but every now and again the story or the match will call for you guys to brawl amongst the fans yeah and that feels like that's a tough spot because you're trying to serve two masters. You're trying to make it look good, but also not hurt anyone because, I mean, families are there and you don't yeah. want to bump into someone. And I know that that's probably not the first thing you think about as a performer, but I'm sure the company's thinking yeah. about it. What's, what's the magic or what are the rules of thumb of brawling through the crowd? Well, I remember going on my first tour for All Japan in 1991, and, and I thought, Based on Brody, you know, running out as Hanson, a lot of the, there were four or five of the monster heels did that. And Japan brawled among the audience and if, and audience members knew if they got in the way, they would get hit. So that made those arrivals seem much more authentic. And I'll say that, you know, given all the pyro in the world, nothing is dramatic to me as a Bruiser Brody entrance in all Japan, especially when they had the Zeppelin song Valhalla. Sure. Uh, after a while, they had to go to a generic version of Valhalla, so it wasn't quite as good. Still, the idea that if you were in the way, you were going to get hit. But I found out about two weeks into my tour, uh, uh, the, the guy who did the translations, I can't remember his name, came over and said, Cactus on, uh, maybe, maybe, I don't want to, you know, he yeah. sounds, but the, you know, I want to belittle the guy's English yeah. far better than my Japanese. Uh, but he said I was hurting fans. Wow. So I had to stop. So I was like, well, I'll take the bump that maybe uh, was best done when Steve Williams whipped me over the guardrail. And I did a, ver a alteration on it with Paul Orndorff that uh, gets a lot of numbers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it kind of yeah. goes up. Um, but those type of bumps could wipe out a couple rows of chairs and could take out <laughs> innocent bystanders. 
So I had to be careful not to hurt people. I was always cognizant of that to the point where I got in a you know shouting match with Sandman after a match in Middletown because he, I didn't think he was showing enough concern for the welfare of the uh, of the people out there. So you have to look like you don't care about their right. their health while uh, obviously not wanting to hurt anybody out there. I liked it. I liked brawling in the crowd uh, when WWE had Jim Dotson as head of security, and then everywhere after that, you felt safe. Like you felt like you were going to be protected. Um, so I liked it. I liked the realism it brought, and then you drop in any one of a stand, you know, standard wrestling move, backdrop, uh, back body drop, suplex, and you do it outside on the floor, and it just brought a, a feeling of realism to it. Absolutely. So the um, the Godwins, we haven't talked yeah. about them much on the show. Uh, kind of the unsung heroes of the tag division for the <laughs> middle of the WWF in the nineties. But I mean, they were there for a long time, and for whatever reason, Vince loves the the hillbilly <laughs> characters. He's had them forever and ever. What were those guys like in real life? Did you enjoy working? with I them? did. I and I liked both those guys, Mark Canterbury and uh, Dennis Knight, and really enjoyed them when they were the uh, uh, Tex Slazinger and uh, Shanghai mean, Pierce. Yeah, Shanghai Pierce, right? Um, good guys. And there's a photo I posted a few months ago, uh, uh, probably back in February of my son's first, Dewey's first, first birthday party. And the wrestling contingent that was there was Ravishing Rick Rude. Always surprised people that Rick and I were such good friends. Yeah. Uh, Ravishing Rick Rude, Van Hammer, which also surprised people, and, uh, and Shanghai and Tex. Like, I really liked those guys to the point where I brought Tex over to Japan with me when they needed, like, another, like, killer uh killer uh american so they brought him over as uh tarzan goto's brother-in-law and uh, I, uh yeah tar i remember uh, phineas or dennis saying like yeah i said to the crowd i'm his brother-in-law one of the magazine guys goes i know i gave them the idea so, <laughs> <laughs> so trying to be kayfabe but over there you know the the the, the writers had a had a say like right. those type of things but i liked it they were both real solid Guys, you know, Phineas, uh, uh, Henry, Mark, uh, uh, Mark Canterbury worked a real physical old school heel style. And Shanghai or Dennis Knight reminds me of when I was, you know, getting a little bit of a push in w to, at WCW in 1990 that he wanted. He said, can I take one of your bumps? I said, what do you have in mind? And so he was a big guy, 6'6", six, six, around 270. And uh, I gave him the slingshot. And he took the bump over the top rope to the outside, which was a heck of a bump for that time period. If you do it right, it's still a heck of a bump. So uh, I like those guys. I, I was never a fan of the names that were puns or the names that spelled out. Yeah, yeah. Henry O. Godwin, Phineas I. Godwin, you know, Hog and Pig. With that being said, I, you know, I was not a fan of. Decatur, Illinois, either with the drill, Isaac Yankum, like the plays on words. Not that a few of them didn't work here and there, but uh, I loved, I, I did enjoy working with those guys. The premium live events, as they're now called, are uh, not like they were back then, but this is the first show in New Jersey in almost 10 years. So there's a lot of hype around it, a lot of media. They're even going to have the governor there. Um, and this goes back probably to when Vince did not want to pay the taxes. The taxes. Yes. And then that had a lot to do with Vince. The Athletic Commission versus this is sports entertainment. Sports entertainment. Yeah. 
And that was thought to be, oh, it's going to be the death knell for professional wrestling. And now you look back and see how fortunate we were to have portrayed it as sports entertainment. Otherwise, I believe we would have just been rolled by UFC. Once people saw, oh, you can't do an Irish whip in combat. This is what it is. But we had already, I think by Vince making that declaration, which I hated, right? Because I wanted to bring um, realism into my matches. And I wanted people to have that reaction that I love to have, which is, okay, maybe the rest of that wrestling is this, but this is different. Like you still want you and you were still able to do that from time to time. But by declaring it sports entertainment over the next few years, what it allowed fans to do was accept it for what it was instead of knocking it for what it wasn't. So in the old days, you'd get that, hey, is that wrestling phony? You get it all the time. And that's that stopped being the comment to the point where you, when you did get it every once in a while, it just seemed ridiculous that somebody was still coming at you with that vantage point, especially when I went to India and they all wanted to know, like, is, wrestle, is wrestling real? You're like, you guys worship the great Kali. Have you seen his body of work? Like, right. this is an expo. I hope the big guy's not listening, but it was <laughs> pretty much an expose. Uh, and this is even before he got into the snake charming contest with uh, Santino. As you're listening to this, I'm already in Chicago. And guess what else is in Chicago? My chili sleep. I travel with it everywhere I go. I just sleep better. And you will too. You'll feel better. Chili sleep has made such a difference in my life. I really can't recommend it enough. I thought growing up in the South, man, as long as I had a ceiling fan and cranked that AC down, I was good to go. Well, turns out what I really needed was like a smart thermostat for my bed, but I didn't think that existed. It does. And it's called chili sleep. Chili sleep makes the Uller and the cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro power, temperature controlled mattress toppers. Let me explain. This fits over your existing mattress, but it provides you your ideal sleep temperature. And ideal means what it says. My wife likes to sleep a little warmer than I do. Her side of the bed is warmer. Thanks to chili sleep. My side of the bed is cooler. Thanks to chili sleep. You see these luxury mat, these luxury mattress pads, keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep. Whether you sleep hot or cold, chili sleep is designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Really think about this. Can you even imagine waking up and not feeling tired? Well, Chili Sleep can make that happen. Head over right now to chilisleep.com forward slash Foley to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system. The offer is available exclusively for Mick Foley listeners and only for a limited time. That's Chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. This is obviously a big show, SummerSlam 97. It's uh, got gimmicks all over the place. We're definitely getting more into the Vince Russo era. Uh, you and Hunter are going to open the show open, in a yeah. cage. right? Then Goldust and Brian Pillman are going to wrestle. And the stakes are, if Pillman loses, he has to wear a dress. Which he did, right? Yes. And he wore the dress and wore it well, from what I remember. He looked phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Davy Boy is going to have to eat dog food if he loses <laughs> to Ken Shamrock. Steve Austin will have to kiss Owen Hart's ass if he loses the Intercontinental title. And Bret Hart won't wrestle in America again if he loses to The Undertaker in the world title match. I understand that Eric Bischoff is a big (laughs) proponent of stakes, but maybe 
Maybe Vince Russo has too many here. Maybe. Well, remember, anything Vince Russo suggests has to pass by, has to be passed by. The ultimate filter, uh, as they call uh, it. Events. Yeah. But I'm thinking, you know, there was some frustration in that we felt like we finally had the better show. And it wasn't yet yielding that that vantage point in the ratings. Right. You know, we were still getting beaten every week and we would for the next 30 or 35 weeks into the uh, 83 week run of WCW on top of the ratings. So I think there was a little bit of frustration and also the sense that uh, SummerSlam is securely in 1997, the number two show. I'll argue that I think Royal Rumble is bigger than SummerSlam now. And it's become like uh, a destination, you know, yes. for, for parties and, you yes. know, the, the, the WrestleMania. What are the... Uh, it, uh, they get a little bit of gambling. What are they? What's the re, what's the word I'm looking for? Not an auction. Well, they do prop bets. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. and we love doing that. And I think it's one of the most fun matches. It can be depending on the finish. You know, I remember taking my kids to see a Royal Rumble in Philadelphia because there. Was oh, you're a, thinking of squares. That's what people do. They do Royal Rumble squares. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to jump out. But just sure. just indulge me here. There was a big blizzard in Philadelphia, so I thought, I'll drive. I've got more experience than my oldest son driving the blizzard. And so I was basically dropping them off at the First Union Center, whatever the name was at the time, in Philadelphia. And then when I came back to pick them up, I didn't have to know how it ended to know it did not end well, because I just saw people with their head down. Nobody had that vibrant feeling of joy that I talked about uh, in the post uh, Ric Flair's last match uh, backstage area. Uh, it was, it seemed like a depressing night because we didn't give the people what they wanted at that time. Uh, uh, but the Royal Rumble, I think usually does leave people feeling good. And it's uh, the anticipation of it is always. Uh, and isn't it crazy too, though? I think the Royal Rumble you're talking about is when Roman won it and, yeah. and Rock is Rock there to anoint out, yeah. him. Yeah. And now here we are saying, man, how magical will that be as a WrestleMania? Oh, yeah. It's just a handful of years later. Sure. Really. Yeah. And uh, and if that was the plan all along, kudos to Mr. McMahon. Stay in the course. Stay in the course. Yeah. Saw something in him. And now it's like, well, I was a Roman believer. And, uh, I, you know, I got a lot of flack for sticking up for Roman. At a time when, uh, you know, that's not what a lot of people want to see. Yeah. And then he was able to turn, you know, what was not a perfect baby face into just one of the great heel depictions of the last 10 years. At least. Thank you, you Paul know. Heyman. Yeah, Paul Heyman. Big, yeah. big, big proponent of that. So let's talk about SummerSlam here and what big business it is. You've got 20,213 fans there. So probably one of the biggest crowds you've wrestled in front of at this point. Before, yeah, before things really got rolling in 98 where we were selling out almost every night, sometimes before the card was even announced, this would have been a giant, a giant crowd. 17,361 fans paid an incredible $523,154 and over $202,000 in merch. Wow. In 1997, that's a huge house. It's a big house now. Yeah. But back then, whew, Imagine if they fire. had Mr. In Your House shirts at that time. Flying off the shelves. <laughs> By the way, you can pick that up over at adfreecares.com. And don't forget, we donate 100% of the proceeds to St. Jude's Children's hey, Hospital. while we're talking proceeds, just, yes. uh, just in the interest of uh, doing the right thing, I know we're going to talk about it at the end, but in case uh, listeners aren't here or viewers until for the full course, sure. 
we're really excited. I'm really excited to be taking part in this. Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, the money for Mongo. Uh, it just so happens uh, it works out great for me because I'm only about 90 minutes south of Chicago filming a show for WWE. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but it's breaking Whoops. news. One of the hosts of the new season of Most Wanted Treasures and really enjoying that. So when you told me about this event we were having for Mongo, I said, hey, I'm only an hour and a half away. I didn't know Steve, but, uh, you know, Deborah, his ex-wife, was my uh, assistant. And I was a huge Bears fan during those years, during the struggling years, the early to early 70s, all the way through, you know, to this day, they're still the team I pull for. But I was so excited that they were finally good. And, yeah. you know, that that Super Bowl shuffle year was amazing. So Deborah was surprised when I told her what a big fan I was. And then backed it up by reeling off probably 10, 11 names off the top of my head. Wow. And so that was a special time. And uh, people who know Steve just rave about what a great guy he was. And even his indomitable spirit when he was uh, diagnosed with ALS, like he was still funny. He was yes. talking about it's almost impossible to fight this thing. It's one of the most devastating illnesses out there. And uh, anyone who's seen Steve, you know, uh, recently seen photos, it's, it's jarring. Yes. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's really instrumental to know how dev to see him, to understand how devastating this disease is. Um, no matter if you have good insurance or not, costs are going to build up. And so we're trying to offset those costs by. It's a five figure yeah. deficit a month. Yeah. Every single month that, that insurance and the NFL doesn't cover. And so every little bit helps. We encourage you to go right now to moneyformongo.com, make a donation. And by all means, please give as much as you can. Yeah. But what we're doing is we're getting together a super podcast show. Mick Foley will be in the ring. Our stage will be a wrestling ring with the ropes taken down with uh, Eric Bischoff, Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, uh, Jeff Jarrett, Ric Flair. I mean, this is a who's who of professional wrestling podcasts all together, all pulling for Mongo. So go check it out. Moneyformongo.com. The show is free. You can watch it on yeah. Fight, YouTube, anywhere else. We just encourage you to make a donation at moneyformongo.com. And if you're not able or position, position where you can, retweet. Yes. Uh, shares, all that stuff is really helpful. Absolutely. Every little bit helps. Moneyformongo.com. And by the way, I want to mention, it goes directly to Mr. and Mrs. McMichael. It doesn't go through any other hands. Yeah. It I goes know. directly to them. And research is invaluable. Yes. But in this case, we're looking to make uh, the days and months, um, however much time Steve has ahead, we're trying to make it as comfortable as possible for yes. him. For and him I, and his family. Yeah. Um, it feels silly to even talk about wrestling after talking about Mongo, but I, I'm glad you put us on the right track there and, and reminded us what we're doing tomorrow. SummerSlam sells out a week in advance. Uh, the show is going to break all kinds of pro wrestling uh, in, in records in three categories. Uh, it's the former Meadowlands Arena, and those records were probably in place from SummerSlam 89, uh, which had Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake on top taking on Zeus and, and Randy Savage. This beats that. It's uh, also the second largest of the entire year, trailing only WrestleMania in Chicago. So when you think about that, you know, that's a big deal Yeah, to be right behind WrestleMania. And when it came to the actual match, you guys got plenty of time, 16 minutes and 25 seconds. And, and Meltzer would say that, Helmsley tried to run away and escape immediately, thus pointing out the flaws of WWF cage match rules. So 
Meltzer, not a big fan of this version of the cage match, right. but you grew up on it. Right. Could you see both sides or yeah. do you still prefer? I can because like I acknowledged earlier, it seemed strange that you could win a match by escaping, especially when there were so many points where it looks like somebody could. I'm imagining, I'm thinking that Dave grew up with the Cow Palace, um, their cage matches, which would have been different. Um, so I think it's just according to what you grew up on. But I, I thought that, the, like we talked about earlier, the blue bars and the creativity afforded allowed some really dramatic moments, especially in an era when, in the current era, where false finishes are there a dime a dozen. And it's really hard to have a great match in most fans' eyes unless you do a bunch of cool moves and a bunch of really great false finishes. So the escape allows you to do false finishes without pinfalls. Right. And it, it could be really well done or not so well done. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I I don't pretend to be as good a cage match wrestler or I don't uh, pretend that the match that Hunter and I had was as good as Brett, Nolan, or a few of the other classics. But I uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Well, you've kind of always been down on yourself on cage matches. You even wrote in your book, quote, as a general rule, <laughs> I tend to suck big time inside a cage. But this match was memorable. <laughs> Why do you think you, why would you say as a general rule? I think I, I think I was being too hard on myself there. I yeah. think it's a general rule. I was a very average cage match wrestler, um, especially as the bar got higher and you couldn't get away with just the rake and uh, a, a little bit of blood. So I think I was an average cage match wrestler, especially in the blue bars when I had the creativity part of it, but. Physically, I just couldn't do some of those things that some of the other guys could to make the cage matches memorable. Meltzer's criticism of this match is that, quote, China is the only thing in Helmsley's repertoire that the crowd seems to care about. So her constant interference is something of an easy out. And he would even say the cage didn't prevent outside interference, which is kind of the whole gimmick of a cage. Is Meltzer getting too inside baseball there? Is it just supposed to be entertainment? Because it was entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, um, and I don't, I have not uh, to this point disagreed with too much he said. You know, he said the match with first match with Eddie Gilbert was disappointing, which it was. Um, But in this case, yeah, yeah, I think maybe so. Because I I tend to be very realistic and maybe even a little too tough on myself when it comes to matches. But this is one I really enjoyed. And going back to the great moments versus great matches argument, I think we had a great moment. Uh, and that uh, this victory really helped me out, you know, and Hunter sure. doing the favor and what was a really good match, you know, staying put for what could must have been a harrowing elbow off the, not the top, but the second rung from the top, because I realized as I was scaling that cage that I couldn't actually perch on the top. Uh, so it was not as dramatic. Your as, plan was to perch on the top. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to show you, uh, you know, not everything was in order, you know, when it comes time to tear off the mankind shirt and reveal the, the you know, the, the heart shaped tattoo underneath it, which was the dude love hallmark that I completely forgot until practically my music's playing. And then I think I, I don't know who I had to draw the heart there. I don't want to say hard on because it's an easy out, right? It's a cheap pop. <laughs> and you guys out there are too good for that. Um, but it, it was marked on my body so quickly. It didn't have time to set. So now I get up to that top and I think I even cover this in the new rivals episode with, uh, a and I haven't seen the show yet. I hear it's really good. 
But when I tore off the mankind uh, shirt to reveal that tattoo underneath, what I was really revealing was just a blob of messy colors that had run down my chest. Like there didn't seem to be a point to the casual observer as to why I was tearing off my shirt, what I was trying to reveal. But it was supposed to be the heart shaped tattoo that, you know, that had been with the dude since 85. So you get the mandible claw on in three minutes, and Meltzer would say, China broke it by choking him with a chain through the cage. She then gave the chain to Helmsley, who used it. Mankind makes a comeback and was climbing out, but China gives him a crotch shot. Then in the first spectacular spot of the match, Helmsley gives Mankind a superplex off the very top of the eight-foot cage. It wasn't as spectacular as when Hogan and Bossman did the exact same spot in their series of cage matches in early 89, but who else has ever even tried a spot like that? And again, as you pointed out, this is before the rings changed. Yeah. Scale of one to 10, how bad did that suck? You're going to be feeling that for, for a few days. And then I think uh, I took a back body drop into the bars. And then I think we'll get to Joni slamming the uh, um, cage on my head. Uh, I was, yeah, I was really sore, hurting for uh, for several days after that. Is night. it your idea to have the superplex off the top or does somebody say, what if? I don't remember. It sounds like a hunter call asking if I thought I was physically up to it. So that's a case where I could never. That's a, lets me do a uh, uh, super. I later took one from Kurt Angle in TNA, um, but otherwise I, I took one from Johnny Smith in All Japan. But even then, it was like I was kind of shaky as far as just being on that top rope. You know, I was never, never felt at home there. And wish in retrospect, I'd spent a lot more time working on becoming comfortable up there is that a spot you've do you remember a guy coming and pitching something to you where you turn it down only if i thought i physically couldn't pull it off okay. you know and that doesn't and uh i did you know nobody came to me with ridiculously dangerous spots they i was usually the one coming to them with spots for me and that sometimes they'd be exnayed by the you know the kind-heartedness of my opponent that night or even going back to what jerry briscoe told me the first day of my debut like we know you do a lot of wild things there may come a time when we ask you to do that but please don't do it until you're asked so as wild and as physical as the mankind style was like i did have some gas in the tank you know i'd say probably the hell in a cell was a turning point where i no longer believed in my own mortality uh, but before that, yeah, I was pretty uh, adamant about getting in those, like, I'd say mid to high level bumps without the outrageous bumps. Which is, we kept them to a, 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 not to a minimum, but we kept them kind of well regulated. Melser would write, Helmsley then had the opportunity to win, but quote unquote, changed his mind and stayed in the cage, constantly slam mankind's head into the cage. As he tried to escape again, Mankind stopped him on the way over, holding his hair and leg. They were up there again with Mankind holding Helmsley by the ankle when China climbed up and gave Mankind a forearm to break it up. Helmsley later backdropped Mankind into the cage. And Meltzer would say the heat was disappointing for all this. Do you remember being in that match and feeling like you had the fans and you started to lose? Yeah, them? Uh, no, I don't. And I do recall instances where I was where I felt, oh, no, we're losing them. Oh, no, why can't we get them? So my recollection might be different. So I, I don't particularly want to go back and watch it and be disproven. Sure. <laughs> but my feeling was that it was uh, that people enjoyed it. 
and uh, that might just be because they love the ending. Um, but a really good ending can make everything yes. you've done in the match seem that much better to all but a select few. And Dave might be one of those select fews because he's watched more wrestling than anybody. Maybe corny, you know, maybe there's a handful of Americans out there who have seen more wrestling. And he can be a pretty tough taskmaster master when it comes to those uh not not to be confused with Shockmaster. Or that's a different thing. Yeah, a different thing. <laughs> uh, from your book, you wrote, We went at it at a good pace for several minutes before Triple H took over. At one point, he rammed my head 10 unanswered times into the blue steel bars. Even though I tried to absorb the impact with my shoulder and chest, I could feel my noggin bounce against the steel yeah. about half the time and woke up the next morning with the lumps to prove it. Unfortunately, that would be far from my worst pain of the night. Now, we'll, we'll talk about the worst pain of the night, but yeah. we talked about this cage at the top of the show. This is not a typical cage. This is solid steel. Yeah. And there's only so much you can do with your shoulder and chest. Because you're trying to make that impact. You need That's a sound. You need a look. Yeah. And, a visual. and you have to, and unless you're willing to thunk your head off, which nobody advocates. You know, you you try to make the contact, um, you try to make it happen at the exact same time, uh, and st- but there's very little margin for error. You don't really want to be the guy who's clearly blocking. Yes. Yes. And that's, a, I think you, now you would err on the side of safety. Um, but at that time, I wanted these um, landings to be as flush as possible. And I was... Uh, making more contact than I hoped about half the time. Here it comes. The two were standing on the top rope trading blows when Helmsley lost his balance and crotched himself, then landed with his ankle tied up in the ropes. Mankind then tried to leave, but China slammed the door on his head. And Meltzer would say, Terry Gordy built an entire lucrative territory around this spot in 82, and now it's a false finish of every cage match. You could say the same thing about a suplex, though. Yes. Uh, so, um, but at the time, 97, I don't think it was a false finish in every cage match. And I would say Joni did it harder and more realistically. Uh, well, I, I remember Kane's head getting split open like a ripe cantaloupe uh, with the same spot. So it is something that's done. And in those blue bars, that could be really perilous. So the, the tell on that one is she hit me so hard in the head that I immediately grabbed my shoulder because of that stinger you get. Oh, wow. So the pinched nerve went right down to my fingers. So that's, you know, something hurts because even though on a, a very real level, you know, I'm supposed to be selling my head, I had to grab my shoulder because it was in so much pain. And that's me, you know, wanting it to look as good as possible. Uh, Maybe to the point of overkill, because I think it was really out there another three, four inches. And um, I think I just want to ensure it looked really good. And I believe it did. So you you uh, you don't have any ill will or hurt feelings towards China. You willingly put your head out there too far. (laughs) And I think it should be said. I remember when WWE covered this match in one of their shows. Uh, that Joni talked about how she was supposed to uh, give me a low blow, but I had actually uh, ascended a little too far. And you can see her kind of like wondering what to do because the low blow is now going to come up and it's not going to look as good. So she essentially lined up and punched me in the ass. Yes, an ass punch. Yeah, you can look for the ass punch, not delivered 
<laughs> Which should be a finish today. Should be a finish. Yeah. yeah, these kids today, they don't sell the ass. Yeah. Stop slapping the leg, punch the ass. Uh, so you wrote Ox your Baker, you could have worked the ass punch. Yeah. Like you, you did got the, the heart punch. Heart, but let's stretch them out after, you know? <laughs> So from your book, you wrote, victory was in my grasp. All I had to do was get through the door and touch the floor to be the winner. And this type of cage match, blah, 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 blah. Uh, at 200 muscled pounds, Joni Lauer was as strong as many of the men in the Federation and actually stronger than the guy whose book you're reading. <laughs> when she came to the company, many of the men had been hesitant to let a woman show them up, whereas the former Intercontinental Champion Ahmed Johnson had put so eloquently, ain't going to let no bitch hit me. Apparently, I was a little more secure in my manhood, and as a result, had been power slammed, punched, kicked, suplexed, and ball shot by the ninth wonder of the world. None of that, however, could have prepared me for the pain I was about to feel. As I stuck my head through the bars, China made her move. If anyone was at fault for what happened next, I was, because I made my head such a wide-open target. China was merely swinging the door as hard as she could, which is... How I knew she insisted, or how she knew I insisted things on being done. Maybe I should have tried what many believe is the whole idea behind wrestling anyway, faking it. Because the pain that I felt when China slammed the heavy steel door on my head was unbearable. I know that I mentioned earlier my torn abdominal muscle as my most painful injury, but this one was close. It hurt so bad that I didn't even hold my head, I held my shoulder. Pain was shooting all the way down my arm, and I lay still for several moments. At first, I thought there was no way I could continue, and then I sadly realized this was SummerSlam, and I still had one big move left in me. This is tough to watch. It was tough to watch even in 97. I just knew, as you alluded to earlier, okay, all right, now that's wrestling, and that's part of the show. Oh, but now this, this was real. Yeah. And and there's no way to, quote-unquote, work what I saw. This was a real for lack of a better word, head injury. Yeah. If you had it to do over again, would you do it? Yeah. If I had to do it over again, I probably would have would have uh, more correctly gauged where the door met the, the cage, and I probably would have thrown the hand up last second. Back then, do you even try to walk through some not not full no. speed? No, I I only I only believe it or not, I only rehearsed one move in my four full time years with WWE, and that was just so I could determined that I could do the the table spot with Shawn Michaels at Mind Games without hurting him. And so we got out there. We didn't take the bump, but I lifted him up and I realized, okay, we can do this, you know. Uh, So I would not have, I did have a good idea what I wanted to do in my head. And back in those days, you would walk around uh, ringside and uh, come up with ideas and trade ideas. And then, you know, it comes a kind of a powwow session where there are sometimes you're trying to get your point across but I never had that issue with Hunter. Like we were almost always on the same page and we wanted that spot to look good. It's worth mentioning this same spot is going to happen one month later to Ric Flair on a WCW pay-per-view. This is August of 97, September of 97. Am I allowed to say powwow session anymore? Uh, why not? Is that against the rules now? Might be seen as being uh, insensitive. I didn't know that. I don't know. Put it out we'll, there. We'll, we'll look it up. Okay. And and by the time we record next week, we'll know. <laughs> and we will have a more proper. And we'll either decide we're using it or it's got to go. <laughs> Let us know in the comments and we'll act accordingly, I guess. Uh, let me give you a peek behind the curtain. My wife is a bit of a health nut. She wakes up every day at 445. She has a regiment. She's been sticking to it for as long as I can remember. 
and she starts every single day with AG1. Eventually, she got me to try it, but she knew I didn't like swallowing pills, I don't like taking vitamins, and if I'm going to do it, it needs to taste great. She convinced me to do it during the pandemic because she wanted to optimize our immune system, and she did it for better gut health. I've enjoyed better energy. What we're talking about is AG1 from Athletic Greens. Now, what exactly is this stuff? Well, let me explain. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your aging, all your things. I've been doing it for a while, and I'm feeling better than ever. And let me tell you, our friend Dallas, he loves it too because it's lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs. There's no nasty chemicals. There's no artificial anything. And, buddy, it still tastes good. You're going to enjoy better sleep quality, better recovery, better mental clarity, better alertness. It's done all of that for me and for less than three bucks a day. I almost look at it, and my wife does too, it's almost like a an all-in-one nutritional insurance. And don't take our word for it. Go check it out. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. They've been recommended by professional athletes. They've been recommended by everybody I know. Seriously, Eric Bischoff does this every single day. So does Rick Flair. So does Jeff Jarrett. So will you. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. When you saw that Ric Flair did it the next month, WCW did it the next month, (laughs) I mean, I know that, you know, maybe the most famous version of this is the Terry Gordy one. Was it overdone? Does it lose its value when somebody does it the very next month? Next month? Well, you're looking at what, maybe a quarter of the people who watched that match had seen SummerSlam. And by no means was I, the like we said, right. the first to do it. And then uh, I think Rick taking it is going to have a diff- completely different feeling than me taking it to the point where it, uh, who was he, who was he with that day? You know, that match? With uh, Flair? Yeah. Uh, it was the, the, the NWO versus okay. the four okay. horsemen. Kurt Henning had turned. He had teased that he was going to be a horseman. And then he revealed that he wasn't actually injured. He was with the NWO. They handcuffed the other horseman. And then Kurt threatens to slam the door yeah. on Flair's head unless Mongo will submit. Mongo says, okay, fine. Don't do it. We submit. We give up. And they still slam the door anyway. Head. But they did it because Flair was having uh, a facelift done. So he was going to be gone for two months. Really? So that way they could show footage on Nitro of his reconstructive surgery. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I think it has a completely different feel. Yeah. It'd be willing to bet if you watch two cells, they were completely different. Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Rick probably didn't grab his shoulder and lie no. motionless. No. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, I think there's room for two cage matches in two months with the same, uh, with the same door spot. Well, your rough night is not over. The Observer would say, China then attacked the ref and smashed his head into the steps and threw a chair over the cage. Helmsley goes for the pedigree on the chair, but Mankind reverses it, turns it into a slingshot, 
sending Helmsley into China, who was on the other side of the cage. She gets nailed and then takes a bump to the floor. Mankind then uses a double-armed DDT on the chair, and the place begins chanting Superfly. <laughs> the rumor had gotten out that Mankind was going to do the, the Jimmy Snooker splash off the top of the cage from that famous Don Morocco match in 1983. So it's interesting that the crowd... Maybe at first, and again, remember, this is the opening match, yeah. so typically the crowd's going to be pretty hot for yeah. that one. It's a cage match. It's a guy they've fallen in love with, and they're kind of quiet for the first part, but boy, they really get with it and start chanting for this big super fly moment. That's pretty amazing. Well, going back to what I was saying uh, about there being a buzz in the air about Superfly in um, October of 83, based on him taking flight uh, against Backland a year or two earlier. There was, I think it was a similar buzz in the expectation, you know, the hope. So therefore, it's going to cushion the responses up until you reach that point. And I had the same issue with the the cell match. And this is another way. This is like my way of saying I went in after uh, performing to a symphony of silence and saying, brother, we had that silent heat out there, yes. which everybody's used at a certain point to dismiss the lack of response response but i do remember in that cell match with hunter in february of 2000 being surprised that what we were doing was not meriting a a better response you know especially when the as the false finishes go and then once we got outside and that place came alive it was like oh that's right i guaranteed them i was going to go on top of the cell tonight so you can be on your own worst enemy when you predict something like that because you're conditioning, preconditioning fans not to respond yes. as readily until you get to that moment you've promised them, or in this case, at least implied was going to happen. So we, we've been, uh, we haven't been, but we've been reading where Meltzer's kind of critical of the outside interference of China. Well, not kind of, he is. But when you do the slingshot spot and Hunter collides with her yeah. and then she takes the bump to the floor. Huge pop. And now the place comes alive. You called yeah. it Road Warrior-esque in your book. And, you know, for all the criticism there is about too much interference, blah, 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 that crowd response tells the story. Yeah. And I think in, you don't want to say the ends always justifies the means, but in this case, I think it did. That, uh, you know, the pop was enormous when Joni went down, and now we have the feeling that Hunter's going to get what he has coming to him. Hunter took the best slingshot in the business, as far as I was concerned, you know, and I know I always uh, was a big believer in getting him up there and getting his, you know, glutes on my knees, because then when I, when I drop down, it really does give you a springboard and takes a move that you will never see in UFC. Right. You know, oh my goodness. (laughs) They're cooperating. (laughs) John Bond Jones with a springboard into the, yeah, the, yeah. So then well, a monkey flip. Too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hunter did a great job of taking that. And there's a creative way of getting back at Joni without actually inflicting physical. physical. Yeah. You had to tiptoe around that. We would get to a point in the attitude era when men were just lambasting the women, which I wasn't big on, although I may have participated, you know, but I think with the creative spots. This me, just looks like, you know, yeah. it's a foiled moment more right, so right. than physical violence. So Meltzer would write, Mankind climbed over the cage to a slight groan to those who expend- expected that finish, then paused before hitting the bottom, climbed back up, threw his mask off, and China at this point ran in the ring, 
to attempt to pull Helmsley out, but Helmsley had to tell her she was early and she <laughs> left. Do you remember that? No, I may have blocked that one out. And what Dave's forgetting, really important here, is my Navin Johnson moment for anyone who's seen Steve Martin and the Jerk. When Navin hears the music and he realizes he's got it in him, you know, he's got, so uh, his feet start twitching. So yep. that's what I was aiming for uh, to to imitate Navin Johnson and the Jerk when the Dude Love music started to hit. And that foot started to go. So that may have been lost on some people, but that was the inspiration. Dude Love Music plays. I believe it did. And then I make that slow ascent up to the top while realizing with each rung I go that I don't know how to balance on the top of those bars. So <laughs> I love that's not even something we think about till we're there. There's a uh, big difference between he's on top of that cage and he is one rung away from uh, yes. being on he's top. He's almost at the top. Almost at the top, yeah. Mankind would say, or the observer would say, Mankind opened his shirt, climbed to the next to highest rung of the cage, so he technically didn't come off the top and dropped an elbow. Then he climbed out, China ran back in, and China frantically tried to drag Helmsley out, but Mankind climbed over, winning the photo finish, and collapsed to the floor. Mankind laid on the floor until they played the dude. Oh, there we go, there we go, okay. Which revived him, and he got up and started doing the strut to the back. All right. The match had its high spots and memorable spots, and in hindsight, was very well laid out. But something was missing from the body of the match, and it just wasn't the crowd heat. Star- two and a half stars. What? We didn't even get three out of that? No. Come on. That's a shame. Oh, you got, you had more lumps on your head than you had stars. I, I, that's incredible, right? I think, you know, something stands the test of time, and I believe, like I said, we created a great moment. I don't want to go back through there and be disproven, but I thought that was, that certainly felt like a three-star match. I uh, I really enjoyed the match. Um, you even write in your book, when I got to the top, the sound was louder than anything I'd ever been a part of. There you go. I tore my shirt open to reveal my old dude love red heart tattoo, flashed the Jimmy Snooker I love you sign, and sailed majestically into the New Jersey <laughs> arena air. Wham. I landed hard on Hunter with an impact that jolted both of our bodies. It was at that point the single greatest moment in my career. So, and that's me uh, 12 years in. So, I think, again, when I say the end justifies the means, uh, if if we had torn down the house in five-star fashion, which I'm not capable of doing, um, I don't think people will remember it as fondly. So, I think what we did what needed to be done to have a great uh, leave a mark on people's consciousness. I'm curious, you know, if you go back and you think about all the big moments in your career. Have you seen me this defensive about a match before? No. No. But I could tell even, you know, just the way you wrote, this is the most. Because the fact that I spent a long time writing about that match meant it was important to me. And yes. there were some matches, I'll, I'll even say a couple of ECW matches against Terry Funk, where I don't remember a single thing about them, not because of head injuries, but just because they've kind of become blurred. You tend to hold on to the things that are really meaningful and the things that went you know, woefully bad, which is why I'll remember the cell match uh, and messing up and forgetting the words to fruit salad by the Wiggles uh, almost exactly, except one will be uh, a great victory uh, and the other will be a crushing disappointment. We're going to, we're going to remedy the fruit salad situation. After, right. Um, the little boy in you, the fan in you who 
hitchhiked to Madison Square Garden 14 years prior and saw this happen. I mean, I know we're not in Madison Square Garden. Seven miles away, I think. We're not too far. Yeah, it might even be less than that. And it's for the same company, and it's a big-time pay-per-view. It's a big opportunity, and it's it's an homage to this character you created in your backyard. Yeah. And we're live we're watching right then your you live out as an adult man your childhood fantasy and on some level when i when i go through this with you today i think about that famous line you had when you won the world title you know mrs foley's baby boy did it yeah this is kind of really it here more so than the bill yeah. right yeah it's yeah it's living out that childhood dream and, yeah although it didn't come off the top it was close. The second rung of that, yeah. It was close. It was close enough, right? Uh, and it was a nice elbow. I mean, I don't get as much uh, height and distance. And uh, a lot of weight come down. It was probably about 290 at that time. So there's a lot of faith that Hunter had in me. I do remember Joni came in too early. But, ah, you know, uh, I, I liked it nonetheless. Is it hard to reconcile... I'm just, I'm not a wrestler. I'm never going to be a wrestler. I don't know what this feels like, but this is like the culmination of your wrestling dream on some level. And you've got to be proud about that. But you also said this is the most, maybe second most painful injury of all time. What's, what's it like after the match? You've told us before that sometimes after a big match at a big moment, that euphoria sets yeah. in mm-hmm. and you're almost on like a natural high just mm-hmm. about what you've accomplished. But at the same time, you're in fucking excruciating pain. But I was, you don't tend to feel it till the next day. I'd okay. say, um, the you know, the cell, there are injuries that happen where you feel them right away. Uh, this was something, you know, after the, the several minutes of feeling the China blow, um, I think I was in that dance state of uh, euphoria and I had my wife and children with me. So it wasn't the case where you go back to your room and now you're all by yourself. Right. You know, I had my wife and kids. We made the drive the next day to Bethlehem, PA, with the intention of going to Hershey, which we did. But that was when I found out about Steve's injury. So, so I, you weren't in the building. I when guess I bolted. You know, I like to think I stayed till the end, but maybe because I had the kids and it's always a little perilous to get out at the end of a show. Um, it's a you know, anxiety inducer, you know, being people they pound on your car, whether they liked you or not. So it was always good to get out a little before. And so it wasn't until the next day where I saw Owen and said, how'd it go? And he went, oh, the match was good. But, and then we got the news. Oh. Because I believe if I'd known of Steve's injury at the time, you know, there would have ended that feeling of euphoria in, a, in an instant. You wrote in your book, I've got to admit to taking some creative liberties with the story I've just written. In truth, the tattoo was almost invisible. It had become smudged during the match, and I was so afraid of falling when I got to the top. I was actually, I actually flew from bar one below the top. Yeah. The rest of the description is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, dude. Um, when you look back on that, and I know we we don't want to watch it, I understand, but do you, um, where does this rank now? I know at this point it was the most important moment in your yeah. career. Where does this rank now? Is this a top five? No, you? no. I was really fortunate that I probably had almost five bigger moments with Hunter alone. Yeah. 
Um, it was great at the time, but that's uh, yeah, part of the wisdom of uh, the escalation of goals. You know, you hit that goal and then you just don't become complacent. Uh, you set your goals higher while still trying to appreciate the things you're doing while you're doing them. And I think that's one of the big uh, balancing acts for anybody who wants to be the best, but also can appreciate the good times they're having while they're having them. But I think that's the minimum of guys who can actually go, wow, this is amazing. So right. it's tough to be the guy grabbing the brass ring is an old amusement park theme. I don't know if there's only a couple of brass rings, uh, Knobles Grove, for example, uh, you go around and a mechanical arm comes out with a brass ring and you try to grab that with your fingers. It can be a little dangerous, which is, you know, you're encouraging people to lean over off their horse. Um, but it's fun to grab that brass ring. And Mr. McMahon loves that expression. It's tough to be the guy who reaches for the brass ring who can also stop and smell the flowers yes. along the way. And so the guys who really make it almost have blinders on mm-hmm. to where I think by and large, very few of us appreciate the journey like we should, or even appreciate the ride once it's over, if it didn't get us where we wanted to go. Take me back to that night. You come back through the curtain. Uh, Joni's there. Paul's there. Vince is there. Yeah. Is everyone happy, satisfied, relieved? Yeah, probably all of the all of the above. You know, I don't think anyone thought it was a two and a half star match. You know that we just yeah. seen the conclusion of. Uh so yeah, everybody was happy, myself included, and I'm pretty pretty tough on myself when it comes to these things. We got a lot of questions uh, and a lot of feedback about the show, but I do think this is a good one from Tyler Goodman. He says, "Mick, did you feel as important being the first match on the card as you did being the last match on the card?" And we've heard a lot of different schools of thought. I've heard some old school bookers say that, you know, the most important match is the last match, but yeah. the second most important match is the first match. Yeah. And I've heard other people say, well, the first match is actually more important because it sets the tone for the rest of the night. Uh, if you can, I don't know, maybe take your performer hat yeah. off and just talk philosophy for a minute and then reinsert yourself in 1997. Yeah. Was it cool to be the first match? I didn't. I didn't mind. I mean, I understood you got this huge uh, object hanging above head, uh, up overhead. And that was one of the nice things about the blue bars in WWE is it can just be descended and hooked up, as opposed to having to be the last match because uh, by virtue of the fact it took twenty five minutes to set up, and so now you'd have what is essentially a really long intermission before your main event, which can kill the momentum yes. of the show. I would not say the first match is as important or more because you can have a bad match and end with a great show. It's tough to call it a great show when your main event doesn't stinker. Does, yeah, it doesn't deliver. And I think it, 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 you're not really setting the tone with a cage match because you're not giving an indication of what's to follow. This was a night of many gimmicks, night oh many gimmicks, so yeah. to say. Um, and uh, so I think. Uh, it's a, you, you know it's a little bit different situation when you're in SummerSlam, but uh, with that being said, I I never let my spot in the crowd dictate to me how important my match was, because uh, Edge and I, for example, were probably number three or four at Mania in uh, 2006, and we felt like we reserved the right to say that we were uh, one of the best matches, if not the best match on the card. And that became my WrestleMania moment, despite the fact that it wasn't a main event. So I'm cool with going on first. 
I uh, opened the show and I did my uh, Hall of Fame induction, and I enjoyed that. Willie Nelson said there's nothing wrong with going on first, you know, and a lot of times you get out of there early. Yeah. So leave them with a good impression and, uh, and, and hit the bricks. Where do you rank this with your matches with, with Triple H? Royal Rumble number one? Royal Rumble number one. Uh, the Cell match, probably no number two. And we had some amazing house show matches. You know, just in the tent towns, we called, uh, uh, oh, is it Hyannis, Massachusetts, and Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, Situate, Massachusetts. They held maybe 2,500 people in tents in these beach towns. And uh, you couldn't, you, you know, when I, when Triple H, I had the, the salad tongs, you could get amazing bang for your buck by squeezing salad tongs on yeah. your opponent's genitalia. Um, but Hunter you know, had me uh, give him essentially a beel toss off the top of the rope using the salad tongs on his nose. And so here's a completely ludicrous spot that could never happen in real life. But it, you know, Hunter would take the bit, you know, you get the thing and you take salad tongs, you bring them back here. Ooh, like you're casting a reel, you know, like you're going from big fish out there. And he takes the big bump and the place would come unglued. They loved the silliness. So I would put a few of the house matches we had and also the uh, return of Cactus Jack at Madison Square Garden. I would say this is probably in the top 10, but not not top five. Let's talk about uh, Snuka for a minute. Yeah. I don't want to get into a big debate about his right. legacy and history and all the controversy and all that. But did you ever get a chance after this to meet with him? And Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Many times. Um, so I remember Tamina coming up to me in 97 uh, when I taught, first started talking about Jimmy. And thanking me for really shining a light on what he did, because a lot of people are not even aware of that move. I wasn't. Yeah. And so that was a lot of people's um, introduction, not only that match, but Superfly, who was such a great character. And when he died, I wrote an article going back to the trust the art, not the artist, because otherwise you couldn't listen to John Lennon saying imagine because the fact that uh, his producer was... um, the uh, the crazy guy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Phil Spector. Phil Spector. So unless you're willing to never listen to Imagine anymore or any of the great songs, it's it's really hard to. Um, I guess some people can't differentiate. I think it's really important that we do separate the art from the artist and understand that the people who create great moments are sometimes lacking, you know, in other skills. And in this case, you know, that's not, I mean, I'm not downplaying what happened. Right. But I think I choose to. It meant a lot to you in 83. Yeah, it meant a lot to me. I probably wouldn't be here had I not had that moment. Felt yeah. like I wanted to have that same effect on people. But yeah, I knew Jimmy uh, uh, for many years. He was even part of the, uh, the second in uh, This Is Your Life. <laughs> that the rock, right. the rock did for me, and he came out, and he's supposed to say, "Let, let me tell you something, brother. The Superfly loves pie." <laughs> and instead, he comes out. He got his confectionery delights mixed up, and he said, "Let me tell you something, brother Rock. The Superfly loves cake." <laughs> Not quite the same. <laughs> uh, 
Malik wants to know, when and where did you start making the sounds during your matches, the loud yelling sound you make when you're punching or kicking your opponent? When did that become a thing? I don't know. Just along the way. It wasn't even a conscious decision. And I'm not sure dude ever made those sounds. So I know I did them as Cactus and as Mankind. I know I liked uh, being part of an all-inclusive sensory experience when I was a fan. So I liked the verbal wrestlers, just like I liked the verbal women's tennis players. You right. know, like uh, there were some really good uh, grunters. Uh, and that, to me, brought, it brought me into, a new layer. Yeah, add a new layer. And um, a friend so, in high school, I had a wrestling friend named Brian Crutcher. And whenever we would talk about wrestling and, you know, goof around, he would always make your noise. <laughs> So to this day, anytime I hear, watch one of your old matches, I think of my buddy Brian. Yes. I don't remember. I don't know why I did it. It was just instinctive. And again, I I don't think dude did it. I think dude was more like Jay Lethal loved the line in the video game where I said, oh, lighten up, daddy. So you're actually asking your opponent to take it easy on you. That was more in keeping with the dude spirit. Yes. But Cactus and Mankind were very verbal. In this match, and it's pointed out by Johnny Sachs, uh, I, I noticed at the beginning of the cage match, when you did the famous punches in the corner, you did a funny little mankind strut, but then you went to the running knee spot and you threw up the bang, bang guns and got a pop. Did you ever get any pushback on doing signature taunts of Cactus Jack while being mankind since it was a WCW gimmick? Yeah. Well, at that time, we didn't believe that there would be a Cactus Jack. Even here that, in yeah. August, you didn't think so. Mm, I don't think so. Wow. Uh, not until I got to... Um, not until I was told, I don't know when I found out. I, I had to have found out a day before because I did go you into the, the studio. But yeah, I went in, and I went into the studio. I mean, they stitched, made me a pair of tights because I didn't have my ca- the cactus tights. And I don't know what I wore for boots that day, to tell you the truth. So I maybe had one or two days lead time. And we probably were in the studio for 12 hours creating that, that three-minute interview. That wow. takes a long time, you know, it's you can't make the characters can't make contact. So, for example, when I want to do the up high, down low, you're too slow. Up high, we have to do the contact outside the camera's frame so that they can then add that sound in. Because you can't actually have the characters crossing over. So it was a lot of work. That was the same day, I believe, we did a new dude love. It was done. Well, let me go back and say maybe there was a little lead time because I did it at the same time I did the dude love entrance video where he was flying through the air and oh, yeah. dude, for whatever reason is wearing the undertaker's original hat. If you look at it, I think we took off the, or just tied the, uh, uh, the tie dye around the undertaker's purple. Uh, you know, I don't want to say ribbon. I don't think the undertaker right. wore ribbons, but right. it was a, whatever it goes around the hat, that's what he was wearing. Uh, we need that to be quote tweeted somewhere. We need the <laughs> clickbait sites to have, the story that undertake per mankind. We don't want to put the heat on you, but per mankind, the undertaker wore ribbons. That's a little receipt for forgetting him during the hall of fame speech. It's all full circle. Today's episode is brought to you by car shield, who makes it easy and affordable to protect my car from expensive repairs. And that's just for starters. Car shield is the number one auto protection company in the U S and offers protection plans for around a hundred bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before. Whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles. And let me tell you how simple it is to get your car fixed. 
When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic and car shields administrators handle the rest. That's it. You don't have to deal with the paperwork or headaches you're taking care of. Same goes if your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through CarShield also include coast-to-coast roadside assistance. CarShield administrators are there for you with rental car options and trip reimbursement at no extra cost, too. Get coverage today, and you'll lock in your price now, and it will never go up. That means as long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you're protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs for your vehicle. CarShield helps protect my wallet from expensive car repairs, and they'll do the same for you. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That's carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. Woo Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Woo Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time World Heavyweight Champion. Tell them, Nate. Wings! Legendary flavors! World Championship Wings! Woo! Woo Wings! Yeah! Woo-woo! NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Woo! The five-star reviews are in, and it's confirmed. SaveWithConrad.com can save you thousands. Jimmy E. writes that we saved his family more than $1,000 a month. James S. says we saved his family more than $1,200 a month. But how much can you save? It's free to find out right now at SaveWithConrad.com. But if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, or even worse, if you're in a 30-year loan, it's not a matter of if we can save you money, but a matter of how much at SaveWithConrad.com. We'll be back next week talking all about the time you joined TNA. We'll talk about leaving WWE, making the decision to jump, the pros, the cons, the experience negotiating with them, Dixie Carter and the like. But now it's my favorite part of the show. Oh, are we doing it? We're doing it. Let me see what we have. Uh, Do I have the phone over here? So this is uh, Nick, who's given me permission to use this. I think it's going to be pretty epic, but I have a lot to live up to because he's gotten a uh, videos from a variety of people for the opening of their uh, fantasy football league, and they're not—they're—they uh, don't have to use the uh, constraints that I do. All right, so I'm going to try to talk about this a little bit. Right. And I want to remind everybody: this is not a plug. This is just a PSA yeah, yeah. information. Yeah. Uh, Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley, and there it is. And by the way, be sure to do it on your desktop. Don't do it on your phone or apple device well we just don't want them using the app because yeah. apple takes an ungodly part of the uh, proceeds i don't think deep down that's what people want when they uh, book i agree so, totally so uh, don't use the cameo <laughs> app use the website cameo.com forward slash mick foley all right here we go ready three almost two hello to all participants not yet not yet cut off go oh, man I'll let you know. I'll give you the Iggy when okay, it's time got to do that. Got okay, it. all right. The countdown's for me. <laughs> and we're not going to stop. Uh, deep down, the Gen- Degenerates League want to see the effort involved. All right, it's the hardcore legend uh, for the Degenerates League of Fantasy Football. Oh, Nick, the commissioner, reached out to me, and Nick is a great guy. Uh, in order to make the guys uh, in the Degenerates League more excited, they have a uh, – 
They have a number of videos from uh, <laughs> number of videos with a cross section of the entertainment world. I have to tell you uh, to all the participants that uh, I can't match up to the young adult film star or use some of the words that um, uh, she did. But I can match up by having a guest here who's one of the sexiest and most voluptuous stars of the Attitude Era. Let me see if I can find that person. He's coming up, and he's, it's right here. It's me, Mankind, sporting these figures, 56, 52, 56. What a winning hand. This is Mankind. We're man in a Mankind mask. As you know, there's a copyright issue, but deep down, I'm the same guy who defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice to become WWE champion. And this is for your surprise pre-draft promo for the boys. I'm welcoming newcomers Ron, the evil lurch, and KY Kyle. I don't know if KY stands for Kentucky or your favorite lubricant. I'm not going to ask those type of questions. You don't have to give me those answers. And now, without further ado, or should I say a dude, I have to give it back to Mick because I can't read the rest of the writing on the wall. Have a nice day. Wow. Well, that was really nice to have mankind in there, if not if just for a little while. Hey, let's hit the music. Oh, there we go. The Notre Dame fight song. That's right. I know you degenerates league. You're a bunch of idiots and proud of it. The words yins and max sauce are league inside jokes right now. And you talk about creative nicknames. We're talking about Swan, Ellen, Joel, Jay Sad, and last Lurch. Uh, and Lurch last year, Nick the Commissioner finished in last place. The Commissioner finishing in last and had to wear a toilet bowl costume in public by god no more chicken suits we need a toilet bowl costume in public ended up having a random hillbilly guy with his kids take picture of nick the commissioner basically i know you guys like to have fun don't take yourself too seriously you have a custom title belt a punishment wheel and play your own league theme song too well i don't have access to that theme song but we're playing that note your name fight song because i want you to keep fighting for what's right and what's best. And I hope that all of your days are nice. Oh, that was a two and a half. That was a two and a half star. Oh, man, that was a two and a half star video. Um, I'll let but, you know. I'll give you the Iggy when it's time to do that. What do you think? I mean, listen, if you want to do a four star effort, I'm here for you. Nah, I'm good with that. <laughs> Serious business. Uh, well, this is... It's like you can't have the volume turned up to a. You can't turn in a masterpiece at all times. That doesn't mean I don't want him to give me a five star rating. It, they because, made it real too. Yeah. Let's. I mean, we uh, could see the real effort. Yeah. With all due respect to Will Osprey, he doesn't have the number of five star reviews that I do. So even though that was not that was a two and a half star match, I would like uh, the commissioner Nick to give me a. A five-star rating. I might even go so far as to say you had more than four <laughs> five-star reviews in the last month. So technically, doing our wrestling math. Anyway, All right. boys and girls, check it out. Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Don't use the app. Use the website. And don't forget, tomorrow, you can see Mick and I and uh, Eric Bischoff and Tony Schiavone and Jeff Jarrett. And Jim Ross and the Nature Boy himself, all inside of a wrestling ring, raising money for Mongo. So it's going to be like a big podcast with all of us there. Super show. Wow. Come on. How fun is that? That Sounds amazing. And I've had, you know, history. Every one of us has had history with each other. Yes. It's not like anybody on that uh, in that ring will be a stranger to each other. You know, I can't wait to uh, to have some conversation about butts and seats with you and Tony (laughs) Schiavone. 
Maybe have some conversations about glorified stuntmen with Mick Foley. Ah, uh, no, I think that we're past that. We're past. Well, let's just well, see. I mean, uh, I got an extra sock if you uh, don't. Let's throw it out there. Okay. Maybe. Rick Flair, a- let me just, for the record, Rick Flair did chop me with a sock puppet that had barbed wire around it. He uh, he told me, and I don't know what this means. You, you're more in this <laughs> wrestling business than I'll ever be. He, he tells me he's bringing the blade. I don't know what that even means. <laughs> He says, I'll have one on me. If we're getting in the goddamn ring, I'm going to have a blade. I'm like, Rick what? and I, no one will ever take away the fact that we had the bloodiest interview segment of all time in TNA. And it was just prefaced by uh, uh, Terry Taylor coming in and saying, all right, you and Rick, you have 10 minutes. Do that thing with each other that only the two of you understand. <laughs> the, the strange chemistry we had. So we would go out there with this much in mind of what the other guy was going to be doing. And part of the fun of being out there with Rick was acting and reacting. Yes. You know, I, I will probably cover this bloody video segment in, uh, in, in the more detail in the future. But I'm proud of that, that it was the bloodiest interview segment of all time. Hey, and I'm proud that you stopped by Nashville and came and sat in the front row and brought your sign and got to see Rick Flair's last match. And coincidentally, he was your last match, I think. What a small Yeah, ride. yeah. I mean, I, you can argue that. Uh, Royal Rumble 2012, or when I came out and uh, took on the League of Nations with Steve and Sean. But when it's a given and everyone in the ring knows you're on the no touch list, it's a little different than being in there. So the last singles match I had, last match of any consequence other than the Royal Rumble, where, you know, I was out for four or five minutes, did the memorable thing with Santino and had trouble breathing for 10 days because I was so out of shape. Uh, I, I, in my heart, I think of the match with Rick as my last one. And I thought it was really something special. And we'll see what we can create tomorrow for Mongo <laughs> money for Mongo.com central. That's local Chicago time. One thirty Eastern. It's a free show y'all, but we're raising money for Mongo. All, every nickel goes to Mongo and his lovely wife, Misty go to money for Mongo.com. Mick, thanks so much for uh, coming by all the way down to Huntsville today. This was great, man. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, Grillo, great job as usual. And uh, just get the word out. Let people know that Foley is hot out there. Every single week. We'll see you next week. Talking all things TNA. Yeah. Right here on Foley's Pod. 